Welcome to the Human Resources for Small Business podcast, presented by Zenium HR. I'm your host, Brandon Laws. Whether you're an HR professional or a small business leader, each episode of this podcast is designed to bring you the latest in technical HR and leadership at your convenience. More content is available on our website at www.zeniumhr.com. Let's dive into today's topic. Hey, welcome back to the show. I'm your host, Brandon Laws. About a month ago, I had a conversation with Howard J. Ross. He is the author of several books. Uh, one is Our Search for Belonging, How Our Need to Connect is Tearing Us Apart. The others, Everyday Bias and Reinventing Diversity. In this discussion, we talked about his book, Our Search for Belonging. And the idea behind this book is that because we come from different backgrounds, we look differently, we have different ideologies, we a lot of times are separating uh, from one another. We're polarized in our ideals, uh, whether it's political background, religion, anything like that. And he describes how the workplace is one of the places where people with different backgrounds and different ideals come together. And how do we work together? How do we keep building diverse workforces when people are so polarized? And he presents it as an opportunity. And I I agree with it. So I think you're going to really love this discussion. I I really, really enjoyed it. It's it's something we really haven't tackled much on the podcast. But I think you're going to really enjoy what he has to say. He's very sharp. He's interviewed a ton of people and did a, a lot of research for this this book, and it just it's a, a discussion opener. I think you know as you listen to this, I think it's it's worth taking back to your team and discussing how you can bring people more together, build the bridges where you know people may be on other sides of the spectrum, may have different opinions and ideas. It's a it's great overall. I think you're gonna really love it. If you love this episode, please go to Apple Podcasts, give us a five star review. A written review would be amazing. Uh, feel free to reach out to me as well, uh, brandon.laws at zeniumhr.com. Love to hear what you think about the podcast. And of course, reach out to me on LinkedIn, Instagram, or wherever you're on social media. Enjoy the episode. Howard, it is so great to have you on the podcast. Welcome. Your book, Our Search for Belonging, how our need to connect is tearing us apart. You know, as your subtitle suggests, in a, a time where we're seemingly like more connected than ever, why does it seem like we're being more torn apart due to our differences? So, so Brandon, you know that that question is really at the heart of where this book came from. You know, the the gestation of our looking at the research for the book, and I want to acknowledge John Robert Tartaglione who helped me with the research. Was what was happening for me and our society, and you know, I've always been somebody who sort of prided myself at being able to understand the other person's point of view and really being interested in other people's point of view, even though I have very strong opinions myself. And I began to notice that I was slipping into this polarization, much more into this us versus them mindset that I had previously. And so I began to look into it. And, and you know, what we began to find was that as human beings, we do have this incredible need to fit in, to belong, to be part of our groups, to think the 
you know, various groups we associate with, whether it's our family or our social groups. But at the same time, we're living in a society where the information we're being exposed to is much more bifurcated than it ever was before. So we watch different news stations. We have different social media communities that we create. These communities where we're not necessarily connected by geography like we used to be, where it might be our neighbors who we're in community with, it's now more ideology that connects us. And so People on Facebook, for example, unfriend people who disagree with them and build up this large contingent of friends who do agree with them. And pretty soon we're in these these echo chambers that are pulling us farther and farther apart because we have less understanding of each other. And of course, this is not only socially, but we take it to work with this as well. Yes, I want to pull a thread on that. You you talked about how in our personal lives we you know you, you just mentioned like we watch news stations, we unfriend people who have different views. Our our families maybe have the same ideologies, but yet when we go to the workplace, that might be the like the only opportunity where there's a, a diversity of people, whether they they look different than us and they may think differently, different political point of views, and all these things. So like that that's the one place. And so there's others, but one place where we can actually have courteous conversations about our differences. But is that really the theme of the book? Well, I mean, the th- the theme of the book is is we're, I was hoping to get people to try to understand what pulls us to to need to tribalize the way we do, and what are some things we could do about it. But I think you're pointing to something really important, and that is that if we have these you know, virtual communities that are very much people like us. We also know, uh, you know, one of the studies we share in the book is a study that was done by the the Cook Political Report, which is called the Whole Foods Cracker Barrel Study. And what they've done is they actually study the communities that are around these two very distinctly different organizations, you know, Whole Foods being very granola and generally tends to be in liberal communities, Cracker Barrel tending to be more conservative communities, and finding that that more and more we're segregating ourselves even geographically. And so when we think about it, you know, we know, you know, Dr. King said years ago that Sunday morning was the most segregated time in America. We know that people segregate themselves based on religion. We segregate ourselves now socially. We segregate ourselves more geographically. And so like you're saying, the workplace, I believe, is our best hope for bringing some of these things together because it's the one place where we don't get to choose. You know, you could, you could put in an assignment with somebody who voted for the other person from you who's politically different or racially different. You need to figure out a way to work that out so you can both be successful at work. And so I do think that the workplace gives us a remarkable opportunity to not only create a sense of community among the people who were there, but also to contribute to the larger society. I think it was in the first chapter, if I remember right, but you had basically um, an example where there's three people, one, I uh, think a Muslim background, one very conservative, one one liberal, and they work together and how it the the dynamic between all of them they maybe i mean they have obviously different backgrounds and think differently and look differently what was uh, what, what are you trying to illustrate there with because i know our workplaces look like that mm-hmm. but yet do they interact well with each other like what what's what do you think about that well we yeah we started with that because it because it spoke it speaks really to um the the sort of confusion that the intersectionality of all of this creates you know so for example um, the three characters you're talking about, you know, Joan is a is a conservative white woman who is a Trump voter and who, you know, listens to reads Breitbart and watches Fox News and the like. And and Barry is a is a gay man who's married to mm. a Latino man and um, who's very liberal on the other side. And and Fatima is a is a Muslim woman, as you say, um, who's uh, who, Somalian and and um, and so they all come from these different perspectives, but at the same time they link up in different ways. For example, the gay man and the Muslim woman 
you know, share concern about, you know, the Muslim ban and some of the negative, you know, those negative aspects and, and just generally tend to look at race and religion in a more liberal framework. But the Muslim woman and the, and the conservative woman, the conservative white woman, um, have, you know, the same shared discomfort about uh, Barry's uh, sexual orientation. And, and on and on. So there are these constant, you know, and I could go on, but the point is that depending upon which particular thing is at play at the moment, I, one might team up with the other, but then team up with the next one and then team up with the next one at a different time. And I think that this is one of the things that we find is that we're, we're looking for these connections, but the connections are often shifting. And it's interesting to me because why, why do some of the issues uh, that we have culturally bleed into the workplace? Like, you know, for example, like there may be something going on in the news about like, let's, let's say the Muslims, for example, like banning them from a country. And then you have two people that disagree with that in the workplace, but yet like people start talking about it and people are so polarized. How do we, how do we start engaging in dialogue without being so polarized? Well, I think, I think it's important for us to understand in order for us to understand why that's particularly happening uniquely now. Um, I think we have to understand why our political environment is distinctly different from ways that it's been in the past. I mean, we've always had differences. There's never been any question that we've had differences politically. I mean, I grew up in the Vietnam War era, so, you know, you don't have to tell me about that. But, um, but, but for the most part, when we look at ourselves historically, American politics has lived in a bell curve. We've had a large yeah. number of people who were sort of in various stages of the middle and who would reach across that difference uh, on an issue-by-issue -issue basis. So, you know, uh, um, famously, Ted Kennedy and Orrin Hatch, the arguably the most liberal and the most conservative members of the Senate, not only were good friends, but teamed up on things like education reform, uh, Joe Biden and John McCain on any number of issues, because it was very much an issue orientation. So I would say, you know, I disagree with you about civil rights, but I agree with you about gun rights, or I disagree with you about foreign policy, but I agree with you on domestic policy. Now what we're seeing happen is we move from that bell curve over the course of the last 25 years to a dumbbell curve where everybody's on the extremes and almost nobody's yeah. in the middle. And, and the big shift, the most important shift about that is it's shifted from an issue orientation. I disagree with you about this, but I agree with you about that to an identity orientation. It's no longer about issues. It's now mm -hmm. you're, one of the, you're one of those yes. kind of people. And so when we look at the last election and we, say, we see how that might play out in the workplace, if I'm a Clinton voter, and I know that you're a Trump voter, that means you're one of those kind of people. You're not one of my kind of people. And that can affect the level of trust I feel in you, how I like you, whether I want to spend time with you. I mean, I've been shocked, for example, you know, as you know, we went out and interviewed dozens of Trump voters. It's now well over 100 that I've interviewed for the research on the book, because I tend to be on the liberal side. And so I wanted to hear a little bit more and understand a little bit more. And it's been fascinating to me how many people on the liberal progressive side of um, the equation, friends I know, people I know, who say things to me like, I can't believe you wasted your time talking to all of those people. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. You know which, is, which is to me really bizarre, because how are we going to try to ever bridge the exactly. barrier if we're not talking to each other? But I think it speaks to where we are. Now, if, if, if that mindset comes into the workplace and you know the person next to you voted for that person, we can see how this could create a problem. You had a brilliant quote that actually illustrates the point you're making really well. Mm -hmm. So you said, it is no longer, I disagree with you on this point. It becomes, I don't like who you are, end quote. And it, it, to me, it's almost like, okay, if, you, if you're if you siding with this point of view or this opinion or these values, I just don't like who you are. It's not that I don't dis just disagree with you. I just don't like you. 
And that, like, how do you how do you be productive in the workplace if you just <laughs> claim that I just don't like you because you're siding with a point of view? Or yeah, I think this is I think this is the the challenge that we've gotten to. I mean, I think you know we all I think we all realize that any politician who runs for office puts themselves up for judgment. I mean, that's what running for office is about, and people are free to have any judgment. Anything from love to hate and everything in between about a politician who runs because they put themselves up to be judged. But in my opinion, that doesn't mean that everybody who necessarily votes for that person um, gets caught up in that. And I think we've gotten to this place now where there's an assumption because of the very reasons I was talking about before, that if you voted for Secretary Clinton, that means you love her and you're for everything about her. And if you voted for President Trump, you love him and you're everything about him. But the truth is, it's not like that at all. In fact, it's much more of a continuum. I mean, for example, 56% of the Trump voters that I talked to said that they voted more against Clinton than they voted for Trump. Most of mm-hmm. them said, many of them said they don't particularly like him. They just couldn't vote for her. And I know, or two evils or something. I know there are lots of Democrats who felt the same way about Clinton. They didn't particularly like her, but they couldn't vote for Trump. And so the assumption that just because you voted for somebody means you agree with everything they say is a false assumption. And yet we, we consistently make that assumption. Just moving on a little bit. How, yeah. how much of our beliefs and values are shaped by genetics and you know who we're brought up by versus is the environment because you had a really interesting stories on this point and you spent a, yeah. a couple chapters really talking about this i'm curious if our ideologies are really more or less kind of hardwired into us well you know it's really interesting and you know i mean i i mean i tend to fall in the domain of nature and nurture mm-hmm. um i think you know we we live in this constant um in psychology i think people live in this constant um you know debate is it nature or nurture and i think there's no question in my mind that it's some of both but mm-hmm. but particularly what you're talking about is some research that was done at harvard and yale that showed that um there seems to be a pattern where um the brain structure of conservatives and liberals is actually different um conservatives tend to have more active amygdala more active fear center of the brains and they tend to be more focused on security liberals tend to be more focused on uh, other kinds of things particularly the need to connect relationship and and uh, far more um access to experimentation. So for example, in one study they found that uh I think it was John Jost at, at Harvard who found that um that students, conservative students tend to have like more cleaning supplies and things like that whereas liberal students tend to have more travel brochures and the like. Uh but but if we look at this from the standpoint of brain structure, we could see like any other part of the body, um some of that could be inherited. And so there seems to be some evidence to suggest that uh, and, and again, we're talking, I want to be really clear to our listeners, we're talking archetypes here, not stereotypes. So we're yeah, not talking yeah. about everybody. But there's, a, there's some significant evidence to suggest that not only do we adopt our parents' politics in the long run because we're exposed to their politics, but we also may adopt their politics because we're, our brains are actually designed similarly to our parents, you know, genetically, and makes us more inclined to turn towards one kind of politics versus another. You know, what's like really concerning to me is that like our ideologies uh, are, are really public now that with social media and just the fact that people a lot of times air out their opinions and, you know, might like an article, whether it's, you know, religion or politics or whatever. And, you know, when we go to work and we interact with these people, I feel like people kind of self-select out of like trying to understand their point of view. And I think isolation happens. So what happens when people become isolated, don't feel like they belong as part of a group? Because I'm, I'm sure it's not a good thing, whether it's, you know, in your personal life or even at work. Yeah, well, there's no question about it. And I think that I think just to speak to the first part of your question, and I'll get to the second one. Mm-hmm. Um, 
uh, there's no question that we um, we know more about each other than we used to. I mean, it used to be that nobody talks about politics at work. But yeah. if you're somebody's fa- if you're somebody's Facebook friend, or even if somebody says, "Did you watch such and such last night?" and you know that meant they were watching Fox versus watching MSNBC, you already have a sense of you think you have a sense of what their politics are. So, so um, you know, we we do have we do have much more of a sense of understanding or thinking that we understand what people believe. And of course, when they're in the other group, there's a psychological phenomenon that they call the outgroup homogeneity effect. The tendency is to think that if you're in that other group, that you're all the same. Whereas in our group, we know that we're different. So if we put this in the context of fitting in, we know that the human need to belong, in fact, um, may be the most primary need we have. You know, Abraham Maslow created his model back in 1943. And in his model, you had physiological needs and then safety, then belonging, then self-esteem, and finally self-actualization. I'm sure most of our listeners know about Maslow's hierarchy. Um, but what we're now finding through the neuro and cognitive science research is that belonging may, in fact, be our key human need. And and when we feel excluded from a group, it actually triggers activity in the same regions of the brain, the dorsal posterior insula, that's associated with physical pain, which is why bullying is such a, a horrific thing, feeling isolated from a group. And it's no accident, for example, that almost every time we see one of these incidents happen, or like the incident in at the um, synagogue in Pittsburgh or or Sandy Hook or Parkland, you know, all of these kinds of incidents, what's the first word we almost always hear used to describe the person? Loner. You know, that often these are people who suffer from social isolation, and it also contributes mightily to the fact that four times as many gay teenagers commit suicide because they don't even feel like they belong sometimes in their own family. So so this sense of isolation and exclusion is an incredibly powerful tool that can have um, hugely negative impact on people. And, you know, as you know, we also shared some of the research that was done on prisoners who are put in solitary confinement, and it's just horrific. They suffer, most of them suffer, even if they get out, suffer for a life from a lifetime of post-traumatic stress by being in solitary confinement, which almost fits the definition of cruel and unusual punishment. Some of those examples are, you know, obviously extreme things that are happening all across the country and internationally. But when we, when we talk about the workplace and isolation definitely happens, what are ways that organizations can build those, those bridges that you talk about in the book to belonging you know like you have so many great ideas that the last couple chapters really talk about all these ways that you know people and organizations can build those bridges yeah they're absolutely and they're things that we can we can do in organizations and particularly i want to say in smaller organizations because you know the smaller the organization the easier it is to wrap our arms around it i think leaders have not only an opportunity but a responsibility to create this sense of belonging in our environments and and we did identify you know some some pathways to do that one that's really important is that leaders create a very clear sense of what we're trying to do here, a clear vision and purpose in the organization, um, because that allows everybody to have a true north that they're pointing towards. Um, and then people can, can you know, sort of sign up for that or, or walk away from it. But, but without that, it's not clear. The second is that we have a sense of clear boundaries, that we, that we know what rules we're playing by and that we follow those rules. And I like to use the metaphor that, you know, if you, if you have a small child or a pet and you put them out in the backyard and and your fence is broken in places and has openings in places, you've got to watch every minute to be sure they're safe. But if you know the fence is sealed, if you know that there's no way for them to get out, 
Um, then you don't have to watch every second. You can check every now and again, how is the kid doing in the sandbox? And similarly, when we have a sense that we're all operating by a shared set of rules, we can relax a little bit because we know what to expect. And I think, you know, that's a little bit of a challenge that we have now in our society today because it feels more and more like we're not operating from the same rules. You know, a third component is how willing are we to be vulnerable? And as leaders, we set the tone for this. You know, can, are we willing to open up to our employees and talk about our own fears and concerns so that they feel comfortable talking about their fears and concerns? I think the leadership models that many of us grew up in uh, were these models where the leader had to be strong and infallible and never make a mistake. And, and that's a real trap for people to fall into. So there are any number of things like that that we can do. I mean, there are more, but uh, you know, I know we, we have a little yeah. bit of restriction of time here. Yeah, those are some great ideas. And, and obviously, people need to go get the book. There's there's a lot of great action items. I, I'm curious, though, like so with some of these steps, um, you talk about like vision and sense of purpose mm -hmm. and container, uh, vulnerability, all those things. I, I worry that like as people, you know, abide by those rules and those values that you end up having a lot of the same people. So it's a matter of probably recruiting and hiring people that have, uh, you know, obviously share the same values, but have a difference of background. Mm -hmm. How do we get over the, you have a whole entire book about bias. Yes. How do we get over the, the personal biases that we have, whether it's, you know, it's unconscious or not. Mm -hmm. uh, I know you have a lot to say about sure. that. Sure. Yeah. And, and by the way, another, you spoke to another one of the pathways, which is inclusion and enrollment. You know, are we reaching out and getting mm -hmm. more people in? I mean, you know, it's interesting because we're at a place now historically where this is a place where we can do well by doing good because we have some really hard research that demonstrates that organizations that are more diverse, that have people who come from more different identity groups, racial, cultural, ethnic, you know, sexual orientation, gender, et cetera, tend to perform better. They, they perform better on the stock market. Um, they tend to come up with more, more potential solutions to problems. They tend to be more innovative. And, you know, if any of our listeners are interested, for example, there's some fascinating work being done by a guy named Scott Page at the University of Michigan on this work right now. And so most, most people in organizations, and we see this in, you know, out of the Fortune 500 companies now, I think 90 plus percent of them have active diversity efforts going on. And it's not, wow, it's not just good. because they want to avoid lawsuits. It's because they're beginning to realize mm. the value of this. If you've got a changing marketplace that is getting more and more diverse all the time, and there's no question that our population is becoming more diverse, um, and you're a business that doesn't have some representation from those groups, we're not going to understand that market share, that marketplace as well. We're not going to understand the needs of our customers as well. And, and of course, internally, as we get, as, as those numbers change more and more, because for example, estimates are from Census Bureau that close to 90% of our population growth over the next 40 to 50 years is going to be from people of color. If you're not paying attention to that, to that population and you're trying to get the best people, you get increasingly fewer and fewer of the best people if you're not drawing from that group. And this is, you know, there's no mystery to this. This is not touchy-feely BS or singing kumbaya. This is basic business sense. You want to get the best talent, yeah, you got to draw from a broader grain. I think that's an interesting point because it's like, you know, in business and in our lives, we can just, you know, kind of peter along and, and do what we've always done. But if we're not paying attention to demographic shifts, our businesses may change. We may become less successful if we're not paying attention. So it's nice that you're shedding light on this this issue because it's right it's right there underneath our nose the entire time. And a lot of a lot of folks probably aren't even really spending a lot of time on this this initiative. Yeah, and, and unfortunately, a lot of the diversity work we've done historically has been aimed at people rather than working with people, and particularly, of course, mm. aimed at the major 
you know, the predominant dominant groups of white men. And, and so a lot of white men feel attacked by that work rather than help to understand it. And my own personal experience is that very few people wake up in the morning and kind of wring their hands and say, how can I suppress women and people of color today? You know, it doesn't, it doesn't occur that way. I mean, right. I mean, we know, no. we know we have the Richard Spencers and David Dukes of the world and they're out there and we have to manage and monitor those people. But overwhelmingly, the challenge we have is not that kind of overt hate. It's more blind spots that we have that we don't even realize causes us to make decisions that are not only unfair to the one particular person, but also a really stupid way to make a talent management decision. You know, so for example, let's say I'm, I'm interviewing two people and one of them, I just, for example, have a positive vibe about because they remind me of somebody positive. The other person has a negative vibe about because they remind me of somebody negative. Um, I know that after a few seconds, but nonetheless, it impacts the way I interview them. If I hire the first one rather than the second one, just because of that feeling that they gave me, it has nothing to do with their competence. And so I may or may not get the best employee. Um, you know, it's, it's a dice roll. Uh, whether I'll get the best employee because I'm judging not based on competence or, or even how well they might do the particular job at hand, but just how they make me feel at the moment, which is not even based on them. It's based on how they remind me of somebody else. So we can begin to see how this is just a stupid way to make talent management decisions. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is this has been a fun conversation. Honestly, we could probably oh, talk for a couple hours. Your, your book is so meaty, and I really want to encourage people to go get this book. So the book title, Our Search for Belonging, How Our Need to Connect is Tearing Us Apart. And um, Howard, you have several other books. Do you want to maybe shed some light on uh, some of your other work? Sure. And- uh, where do you want to point people to? Sure. The, um, the, the first book was called Reinventing Diversity. And I think that's a good place for people who are looking to create a diversity process in their organization. It's really a, um, it's designed to, to help guide people to do that. Uh, the second book, as you mentioned, was called Everyday Bias. And, uh, um, and that's been, people may have seen that it was, became a Washington Post bestseller and has been, you know, pretty uh, successful. And, and that really, um, came out of, uh, our, understanding of exactly what I was talking about, that, that so much of what happens is not necessarily conscious. And, and so, uh, and now of course our search for belonging is, is the new one. If, if people want to reach me, the best place they can reach me is just to send me an email at Howard at Udarta, U-D-A-R-T-A.com. And that's the best way for them to reach me. Howard J. Ross, thank you for being part of the podcast. You know, keep up the great work. This is a, this needs to be talked about. And, and, to be honest with you, I haven't really talked about this on the podcast a lot. So I'm glad that I found an expert like yourself who's written an entire book about this issue. Oh, thanks so much, Brandon. I appreciate that. It's very kind of you to say that. And I'd uh, love to have another conversation with you in the future if it comes up. Thanks for listening to the Human Resources for Small Business podcast. Subscribe to this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, be sure to check out our blog at www.zeniumhr.com forward slash blog and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn to hear about the latest in HR and leadership. The information on today's episode is for educational purposes only and should not be taken as legal or customized advice for you or your organization. This podcast is hosted and fully produced by Brandon Laws, that's me, and created and owned by Zenium Resources, Inc. For more information or to contact us, visit www.zeniumhr.com.